from LPL Financial. Welcome to Market Signals. I'm your host, Ryan Dietrich. Um, you know, the earnings season's kind of winding down. I mean, there's not, you know, we're, this is the quiet period, right? Second half of June historically is a little weak from a seasonal point of view. Just be very aware of that. But this week is really a quiet week on other than the feds. That's what we're going to have our, have our sights and ears and eyes all watching. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest LPL Market Signals podcast. Ryan Dietrich here, Jeff Bookbinder. And about halfway through, we're going to do tag team. We're going to switch Jeff out with a special mystery guest. And it's uh, very, very exciting. But we're, we're on everybody came back for another week. Uh, Jeff, you know who it is. Should we give any hints who this mystery guest could be? What, what hints can we give here? What do you think? Oh, well, he's certainly, well, there's a hit. It's a he. Oh, uh, yeah. And he's just much smarter than the both of us probably combined. How about that? Yeah, that's good. Let's see. I'll say he's also, he lives in the same neighborhood as I do, relatively new to the team, and forgotten more about fixed income than either of us will ever know. Those are my hints for people to uh to, to see who, uh, who this mystery guest could be. But Jeff, let's get into it. I, mean, I was reading over the weekend that we have some billionaires out there that apparently don't pay any taxes. <laughs> now, this shouldn't come as much of a surprise uh, to, to many people, but if you watch along on a YouTube channel, you know we're showing uh, some numbers by ProPublica. Somehow, and it sounds like someone might go to jail over this, they got like IRS going back many, many years of like the 25 richest people in the United States. And when you look at the overall percentage of their net wealth as to what they paid in taxes, you know, there are many years where Warren Buffett, Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and, and Michael Bloomberg, and um, Carl Icahn, and some others, at least from 2014 to 2018, I believe, the five years they got data on, they weren't paying any taxes at all. Um, you know, there's write-offs and there's different ways when you got a lot of money and a lot of accountants, you can get around it. Whereas the average person, like I looked at my paycheck on Friday, I absolutely <laughs> was paying something uh, in Philly's federal income tax. I mean, Jeff, how how surprised were you at this? And, you know, my take is it could be drumming up some arguments for, listen, these guys aren't paying any taxes. Let's increase taxes. I think this is like a salvo with that. Well, what's your take on kind of what we saw? I guess it was last Tuesday when this came out, but ProPublica with this, oh, very private data on some really rich people. Not surprised at all, Ryan. Uh, you know, these people's incomes are really driven by wealth. I mean, it's not even really income, right? It's just they're sitting on a lot of stock. And uh, as the stock appreciates, their wealth grows, but but that's not taxed. I mean, this is why you're hearing um, proposals for a wealth tax, right? To try to go after some of those assets. Um, you've also heard some people talk about unrealized capital gains taxes. So exactly. if you just hold a bunch of stock that goes up, maybe the you know those people should pay taxes on that. So certainly um, it makes sense. Um, you know, the the carried interest tax is certainly. Um, very controversial, right? It's, you know, hedge fund managers as, you know, their income's tied to stock appreciation. Should they pay, uh, you know, the capital gains rate or should they pay income rates? Certainly we haven't heard the last of that controversy, no doubt. No, absolutely. Uh, senator Wyden in Oregon, Democratic Senator in Oregon, he is flat out proposed to tax unrealized, you know, Income gains, um, in essence, stocks, right? Like you said, I mean, you, you hear, we heard the story several years ago where Zuckerberg of Facebook and Ellison of Oracle, 
they're only getting paid a dollar a year, you know, and Jeff Bezos gets paid. I believe it's about $81,000 a year salary. And you think, ah, are there some good guys? You know, they're, they're, they're no, they're just, it's all a ploy not to pay taxes because literally like 90%, maybe even more of their wealth is tied up in real estate and the shares of their companies. So listen, I, I, I it's just, when you see this, it, it shows how kind of a mess a lot of these things are. And you know, Warren Buffett hasn't paid many in taxes. And yet he says, listen, I'm going to give away 99.5% of all the tens of billions of dollars I'm worth. So, you know, should he have to pay taxes when you're just going to give it all away? I, I don't have the answer. I don't know if anyone does, but it's, it was really a fascinating read. And I guess, you know, this is just the first tease somehow pro publica. They've got their hands on a lot more data and a lot more different people that are rich and how much they paid in taxes. And I guess there's more coming is, is the way to put it. If you haven't had a chance to read the article, it was a, it was an eye opener. I'll just leave it at that. So Jeff, Let's get into it. This week in the LPL Market Signals podcast, we're going to talk about a few things. New highs in stocks, but new lows in yields. We're probably going to bring our expert on yields here to talk about yields later. You and I will talk about the stocks higher. Um, uh, let's see what else we have. Uh, there's uh, fixed income, sustainable investing. We're going to talk a little bit about that as it's been an explosion. When we talk about sustainable investing, we at least I tend to think about equities, but there is an explosion in um, in prices, or I'm sorry, in, in people putting investments in fixed income and sustainable investing. And it's a big event this week, the Fed, the Fed preview. But if you're watching along on the YouTube channel, you know that song, Can You Take Me Higher by Creed from about 20 years ago. I've got that up. Um, Scott Stapp, I think I remember seeing Creed a couple times back in the day. They were like huge. Then they just kind of vanished. But nonetheless, can you take me higher, Jeff? The S&P made new all-time highs Thursday and Friday. That's not too bad. But that came in the, oh, the other thing we're talking about, CPI. You and I talk about CPI. Um, in the face of extremely high inflation. I mean, Jeff, just high level. Felt pretty good on Friday to have new highs. Would you, how'd, how'd you sleep over the weekend with new highs? Oh, I slept like a baby, but I, I usually do. Uh, I'm there a good go. sleeper. Uh, you know, I think the most interesting thing about last week was the yields, right? It essentially, you know, yields fell after the CPI, which suggests that the market's not too concerned about inflation. Maybe the market is buying into what the Fed's been telling us, that this inflation is uh, is transitory. And, you know, we've been saying this for a while, that yields and inflation are going to drive this market probably more than uh, anything else. And certainly that was... Um, Clear last week, right? Comfort with inflation meant more more gains for stocks. Absolutely, and we'll we'll dive into inflation here in just a second. But you know, I, I we've talked a lot. I mean, if you listen to this podcast for you know, Jeff. By the way, I think our third three year anniversaries this August, right? I think we started in 2018, right before Focus, our big annual event, or started at Focus, uh, January of 2018. So our three year anniversary is coming. And if you listen to us for a while, you know we. We've been bullish, um, you know, thinking higher prices likely were coming. And maybe you could argue prices have gone up a little even higher than we were expecting. And we've been one of the more bullish shops. But, um, you know, I've shared this data before, and it takes a look at what happens after new highs, right? Should, should you be scared of new highs? And again, you can follow along on a YouTube channel, but I'll explain it. Uh, just the average anytime return, if you buy a stock six months late, or I'm sorry, if you buy the S&P 500, which again, I guess you have to buy an ETF and we can't make recommendations like that. But just broadly as an index, the S&P 500, Six months later is up about 4.3% on average. And six months a year later, up at 8.8% on average. If you buy a new all-time high, up about 4% on average six months later and 8.3% a year later. So not quite as strong, I guess you could say, because there's some historical times when stocks are getting killed. And that's usually when you actually want to buy stocks and they do better. But the truth is, the historical returns just blindly by themselves say, don't be scared of buying new all-time highs. Now, Jeff, I want to let's talk about a couple things that do worry us. 
Um, so I've got the back issues, which obviously that, that worries me. Um, I've been doing all the exercises, doing better. So what we did last night, because it still hurts at night. I'm good during the day, then at night it hurts, right? And I think it's because my bed is too squishy. So my daughter's got like a gymnastics mat. We literally laid this hard gymnastics mat on my side of the bed, and I slept on the hard gymnastics bed, um, mat. And I woke up today feeling pretty good. So I guess I'm just going to start sleeping on hard surfaces all the time. I was thinking, what if I have to start traveling, which I'm not on a plane for a while before next event, but I might be at a nice hotel, some resort sleeping on the floor, I guess is, is what I'm getting at. But anyway, so that worries me. But what also worries me right here near term, Jeff, um, you look at how many stocks are making new 52 week highs now relative to about a month ago, we made last time they new highs, there's less stocks participating, going to get slightly geeky with this, we look at different momentum indicators, things like an RSI, there's some flashing divergences, obviously NASDAQ, and small caps and Dow, all none of them made new highs. The SP did. Uh, so, those are some things. This isn't major worry stuff. Just again, it says, you know, we've been in a really a range for a while now. And, and I think maybe that range could continue or maybe a little more of a pullback. Um, but what kind of worries you right now, Jeff, in the midst of new all time highs? Literally, as we speak, I think the SP is making new all time highs Monday morning. Yeah. Not a lot worries me right now. Um, Ryan, I would say, well, first thing is, trying to set up the backyard inflatable pool and I got some leaks in it. So trying to get that squared away is a worry here in the bookbinder household. But the, I, I think, you know, the worry is maybe in the fall, right? Because we won't have any of these excuses for why, um, you know, why the labor market is coming back too slowly or why, you know, inflation maybe isn't temporary in the fall, right? Because that's when some of these COVID bottlenecks start to clear. Yep. You know, the obvious one is, um, you know, childcare, right? When, it, when all the kids go back to school in the fall, uh, and certainly you would expect all the childcare facilities to be open, there's really no excuse for not getting back to work for those people who want to get back to work, right? And certainly some of these supply bottlenecks would clear, you would think, I mean, semiconductors might take another year plus, but we'll make some more progress, right? And so I think the fall is really when um, you know, I start to get more concerned about a potential bump in the road from the Fed. Mm -hmm. And the fall is when I get concerned as a Bengals fan, will Joe Burrow be alive if our offensive line can, can keep him upright? But uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, just uh, an interesting concept real fast on new highs, and we're going to move forward and talk about inflation. I've shared this idea before. If you look at cl clusters of new highs, they tend to happen for like a decade or more. We had a cluster of new highs in the 50s and 60s for multiple decades, and then in the 80s and 90s, right? You all remember that that period of time where um, those new highs happened for a while. Then in the 70s, you have virtually no new highs. In the 30s and 40s, you're working off the Great Depression. You did not have any new highs then. So what I'm getting at is, I'm going to say only here, we've only been making new highs since 2013. If you look back at market history, the idea that um, could new highs just stop immediately? Sure. I mean, anything can happen. But again, when you look back at market history, you tend to see, you know, a decade or more of new high clusters. And again, I think that supports the um, underlying thesis that we've had for a while. This is a major structural bull market that probably has a lot of life left to it. So just a kind of interesting uh, concept there. So Jeff, okay, well, one thing I want to point out, free works, what I mean by that, my boys had a lemonade stand, and we, I swear we'll talk about inflation next. Uh, my boys had a lemonade stand on Saturday. They wanted to do it for a while. So we're kicking around the idea of do we charge, you know, or do you just say it's free with the anticipation that maybe you make more money with tips? We went with the free. I think next time I want to do one where they actually charge money, we'll see the difference. But in two hours, 
they made $67 and they made it all because mom and dad bought all the supplies. So they took the profits, I guess, which seems unfair, but that's how it goes. Um, but, you know, saying it was free and it's just kind of a socioeconomic, you know, type of study, you know, how does it work? Um, but it was, they got $20 from two people. I was like two different people gave them 20 bucks. I was like, oh my goodness. I felt bad. One guy gave them, like, took two lemonades. I'm like, Hey, you want some cookies? You want more lemonade? And anyway, uh, so we'll see, but we did make them give half of it to a charity. They found a nice dog charity that uh, helps, um, helps dogs in high kill shelters. I guess we gave $33 last night. So, so that, that was nice. But anyway, free sometimes works. What do you think, Jeff? And we actually make them charge for it. You think they're going to get 67 bucks in two hours? Cause I don't, <laughs> what's your take? Yeah. I, it, you know, if you see maybe 50 cents, people might think, oh, I don't have any quarters. I don't want to mm-hmm. make them give me change and could keep walking. So, uh, yeah, maybe maybe free is better. Um, it makes you, you know, makes it feel like it's, um, you know, you're doing something good for the community, right? Mm-hmm. More yeah. of a feel good exchange. So, uh, yeah, I think you probably do better this way. The other th- thought I had is, you know, clearly there's a lot of excess savings sloshing around in the financial mm-hmm. system right now there you go i think i think some of it just found its way into uh your your son's lemonade stand there so uh yeah. the consumer's alive and well here and i had many i'm serious like multiple people say, i don't have any money can i can i venmo you they were half joking but i almost think next time we'll actually make a sign that says venmo me at because so many no one has money anymore you know so we'll take venmo though so anyway um thanks to sebastian and gus for uh for doing that and supporting a good cause. All right, Jeff, inflation is hot. This is the last thing you and I are going to discuss that we're going to take, kind of say we're at the halfway mark. We're going to bring on our mystery guest, but um, I'll set the set the level here. The CPI, which you and I talked extensively about, um, consumer price index extensively about last week in the podcast, came in on Thursday morning, a little hot, up 5% year over year. That's the headline number, the highest we've seen since 2008, um, even more than the expectations were. Um, the core is what the core inflation, which again straps out the or strips out the volatile food and energy, also came in at one of the highest levels we've seen in multiple decades. So, what does it mean? Well, like we kind of hinted at, the market took it in stride, literally made all time highs on Thursday, and yields did a surprise, they spiked higher and then moved lower. Jeff, you've had a little bit of time to think about this high, this spike in inflation. What was your what's your take now? We kind of hinted at it already. Let's build, dig a little more though. Yeah, well. It's good to see interest rates cooperating. That suggests that the bond market, which most people consider to be a little smarter about risks like this than the equity market, right, took it in stride. Uh, so that I think is the most important point. It's it's telling us that this is a temporary problem, like the Fed thinks. Um, you know, also recognize this is a good thing in many ways, right? The reopening surge is driving prices higher of airline tickets right? Cars, hotels, things like that. Now, part of the cars is uh, the, the, the chips shortage, right? It, you know, it's more expensive to get used cars and rental car uh, companies need to, you know, restock their fleets. So sure, there's some supply issues there, but nonetheless, this surge, which is taking prices higher, is a good thing. We want to reopen and get people out there. And certainly based on the traffic around Boston, people are uh, getting out there. I can say definitively. Another way, last thing on this, Ryan, I'll turn it back to you. You know, sure, prices up 5% sounds really high or, you know, a little less than that if you strip out food and energy. But remember that prices didn't rise, they actually fell last year. So we're at, you know, if you don't rise one year and then you rise the next year, you divide it by two, you got a two-year inflation increase of between two and 3%. 
depending on which month you look at. So we're really, in many ways, correcting from the deflationary shock of the lockdowns last year. So, you know, that's another reason why the fall becomes so important here, right? Because right. that's when we're going to move past some of these, you know, deflationary uh, shock anniversaries, right? And then we'll see what prices look like year over year in September. I think that'll be uh, really telling. Now you mentioned airlines or airfare, I guess we should say. That's still 12 beneath where, or 12%, sorry, beneath where it was at the start of um, the pandemic. So there's still some room there, but just some some color on it. Like you said, uh, used car prices jumped 7.3%. That's after the all-time record, this data goes back to the early 50s, um, of a 10% jump in April, followed up with 7.3%. According to the data, that uh, was nearly one-third of all of the jump in the core CPI, the core CPI was up 0.7% month over month. Used cars um, accounted for about a third of that. So pretty uh, pretty interesting. Airfare up 7% after being up 10% last month. Um, auto rentals up 12%. People are actually getting rental cars now. They were not doing that a few months ago. Um, you know, So those are some of the big ones. And again, that those are reopening plays, right? You think about it, those are reopening plays. It feels like this is a repeat of exactly what you and I said one month ago. That you know, inflation it does look transitory. Yes, some parts are jumping, no doubt about it. But um, you know, we're seeing uh, the reopening play now. Jeff, there was one stat I saw this morning, and I want to read this to you. I, I don't have time to really process it, but it's about the idea of supply chains and higher prices. Um, if you shipped cargo from Shanghai to Rotterdam right now, which again are two of the bigger ports in the world and a very popular uh, path, right now it'll cost you ten thousand five hundred twenty-two dollars. That is a 547% increase over the seasonal average over the past five years. And that's according to Jewry Shipping. They cited things like ports are full, there's a lack of ships, um, there's a container shortage. Oh, and by the way, there's massive demand. So you think about inflation, and you and I have been in the um, transitory camp for a while, but then you see the cost of shipping up five times because of those things I just mentioned, it's no wonder things are more expensive because it's just tougher to get them. I mean, do you have any immediate, I know you didn't know this one was coming, any immediate reaction to how, I was shocked, how expensive it is to ship things now versus the previous five years? Yeah, so that doesn't, maybe the magnitude of that does surprise me, but certainly direction doesn't. I know they had um, a lot of ships backed up at the Port of Los Angeles. The, right. You know, a lot of this is COVID related, right? And when, you know, when you don't produce anything for a long time, you can't just turn it on, right? You don't flip a switch and just, mm -hmm. just you know, have the goods show up. So there's a lot of things involved here that um, suggest that this is going to be kind of a rolling inflationary story, right? Um, you know, we'll get maybe some of these labor uh, shortages or labor mismatches resolved in the next three to six months. Uh, but the chip shortage will last longer and maybe some of these shipping bottlenecks will last longer because building one of those ships sure takes a long time, <laughs> right? Oh, Years. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> so there's a limit to how much. So, you know, you need um, you need substitutes, right? You need alternative transportation. That takes time too, but over time that will happen. Uh, buyers will balk at high prices and the market will adjust. Mm -hmm. 
Or if you're like me, when I talked about my um, no ice for about five months, I was willing to pay whatever price I had to pay outside of buying a new new fridge <laughs> to get that PC of my ice machine to work. So it's a, it's a fascinating concept, one we're going to continue to talk about. But we we remain in the yes, likely like the market is voting now, and we'll talk about it more with our next guest. Market seems to be voting that you know this high inflation is transitory with the surprise low move in yields. Um, so at this point, Jeff, I know we're gonna uh, you're gonna tag out here quite soon. The mystery guest, who could it be? It's Lawrence Gillum, our fixed income new fixed income strategist on the LPL research team. Lawrence Gillum, how you doing this morning? Oh, I'm doing fantastic, Ryan. I'm really excited to be here on the uh, on the podcast. Big fan of the show. Well, well, hey, you're more than a fan. You're part of it now. <laughs> Um, thank you to Jeff. I know Jeff has to run an errand this morning. So thank you, Jeff, as always for joining and we'll do tag, uh, Lawrence, you're it. So Lawrence, just, not, just, let's just dive right into it. The big, I mean, again, well, you know, maybe before we dive into it, let's talk about you for a second, Lawrence, Lawrence, how long have you been with LPL and what is your role with LPL and how do you help our more than 18,000 advisors? Yeah. So I, I joined, uh, LPL back in, uh, February of this year. Uh, so it's been a little over four months now. Uh, as the, the fixed income strategist. Uh, so I, I do uh, help out with a lot of the, the fixed, fixed, fixed income strategy, both writing and, and talking to advisors, et cetera. And then also uh, with, our, with our model portfolios. Uh, previously, I was at Raymond James for 17 years, uh, off and on. I, I spent uh, two, uh, two stints there. Um, and I, I headed up our, our fixed income research uh, on the manager research side, as well as our, our uh, asset allocation side. So. Uh, fixed income has been kind of my wheelhouse for for quite some time, and and uh, you know thoroughly enjoyed looking at fixed income markets. Well, that's why we hired you. <laughs> Not all of us do, so it's. A, I like talking about yields and Fed, but you know, I, like I said, you you've forgotten more about the fixed income markets than, than I'll ever know, which is a good thing. So let's just dive right in, Lawrence. The big, I guess we'll call it, somewhat surprise last week, hotter than expected inflation. The economy still looks fairly strong. Um, just about everyone's expecting higher yields, including us. Last week, bonds had a great week. Remember, bonds and yields are inversely related. Yields went lower, surprising a lot of people, even after that hotter than expected CPI number. Um, you know, why? Lawrence, what was going on there? Is it a short-term blip, a long, something changing? What, what, what do you, what's your take on why yields were lower last week, even though no one expected it? Yeah, no, it, it, it was a surprise. And, and the timing of it was a surprise as well, because it happened right after that strong uh, CPI print that, that you and uh, Jeff were just talking about. So uh, the timing of it and the magnitude of it were, were both surprises. So there's been a, a couple of, of reasons uh, that, that folks have said is, you know, a technical, uh, you know, short covering. So that means buying back bonds because you're, you're, you're short um, and, you know, that trade might be over. Uh, and then there's also some uh, talk about the, the ECB being more dovish and, and more foreign investors uh, buying our our bonds over uh, over theirs, uh, so that could you know add a, a, a another uh, bid to our market. Uh, and then you know there's that uh, the, the seasonal aspect of, of the treasury market. You know we talk about seasonality in the equity markets. There's also the seasonality in the bond markets. The bond market tends to do okay during the summer months. Uh, so there was a a couple of reasons. I, I'm leaning more towards the technical factors that it was a supply or a, a, a short covering because of the magnitude of it. Uh, we saw yields move to 153 right after the CPI uh, release. 
but then they they fell to 143 at the end of the day. So that, that type of big move uh, doesn't suggest it was a fundamental driven move, more of a, a of a technical driven move. Yeah, let's not forget. So that happened on Thursday when the CPI came out. You tend to see more volatility on a Fed day, which we'll talk about the Fed soon, or a big CPI day or a big jobs day. And that's exactly, even though stocks were fairly calm, the action really was in the bond market. So just over the weekend, when I was reading and thinking about kind of what's going on with the 10 year yield, put my fixed income hat on the best that I can. Some of the things I came up with, you know, we did have a weaker than expected April non-farms payroll. So some of the economic data in the US, it's mainly been strong, but the jobs data hasn't been as strong. So maybe some potential Potential weakness there. There is a sharp decline in China's uh, credit growth. That's got some people concerned. Commodities have peaked. Lumber is down like 40% from its peak. Now, believe me, lumber went straight up for about you know six months there. But some of these major commodities have finally peaked. The more dovish ECB, like you said, uh, dampening of the U.S. infrastructure package, right? President uh, Biden said 2.25 trillion. Then he said 1.7 trillion. Then recently he's like, okay, how about a trillion dollars? I mean, it's that's really coming down. So the size of what's expected with the infrastructure package uh, could be planned some games in there. Then there's the COVID Delta variant, which has uh, potentially some worries about as we reopen the second half of the year with those variants, what, what that could mean. I mean, there's no, I think the best way to put it, there's no one reason why yields have, have dropped more than we expected, but there's a, there's a collage of reasons. But the truth is, again, we do expect higher trending yields, and this could be um, just a simple pullback in the midst of still a um, bigger uptrend. So, Lawrence, uh, the next thing I want to talk about with you is our weekly market commentary, which you co-authored with Jason Hoodie. Jason's been on this podcast a couple of different times, leads up our manager diligence team, and he's our, I guess, our leader, if you will, in, in the world of ESG and sustainable investing. And you and Jason put together a really good piece. I've got the two charts here. You just tell me when you want me to go to the second chart for the YouTube channel, people watching along. But tell me, um, you know, when I hear sustainable investing or ESG, my brain immediately thinks of equities. I don't know why. Maybe, maybe I'm a stocks guy, but I think of equities. But there's a whole world of ESG on the fixed income side of things. Uh, take it away for about three or four minutes here and tell me about this week's weekly market commentary. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Yeah, it, it, it has uh, tended to, to, to be thought of as equity only, uh, but it is sustainable investing is becoming more mainstream in the, in the fixed income markets. And companies that actually fail to acknowledge those changing dynamics uh, are, are facing financially material impacts. So it is, it is moving markets, it is uh, moving into fixed income markets, and that's the, the, um, the, the point of our, our weekly uh, market commentary this week. Uh, just as a, as a quick refresh, uh, you know, sustainable investing, it's that umbrella term to describe the, the, the range of investment practices uh, that, that seek those com uh, competitive returns, but they also consider environmental, social, and governance risks and opportunities. Uh, so when we talk about sustainable investing, we're talking about you know socially responsible investing, ESG, impact investing, all those, all those things fall under that sustainable investing umbrella. Uh, so what we're showing here on the, on the slide is these things called transition risks, uh, and and these are risks that result from changes in climate and energy policies, a shift to low carbon technologies, and these liability issues that may negatively impact the cost of capital for oil and gas companies. So uh, as we know, the equity uh, returns in, in the energy sector have been fantastic this year. They've, they've led uh, the, the S&P during 2021 because of rising oil prices. Bonds, however, haven't kept up, and they've actually underperformed a broad aggregate of, of corporate bond it, uh, indexes. 
So for bond investors who you know, typically have a longer investment horizon, they're increasingly having to consider the, the financial materiality of, of climate change. And there is a financial materiality of climate change. Uh, and, and we're seeing that as uh, energy bonds have continued to underperform uh, their, their aggregate peers. So uh, now this is a chart that it should, we're looking at Euro energy, the Euro energy index relative to the Euro corporate index. Uh, sustainable investing is, is much bigger in uh, the European markets, as well as there's uh, uh, there's been additional rulings over there that um, suggest that the government is more involved in uh, in um, you know, helping speed up the transition to a low carbon economy, and that's a, that's weighing on on uh, on bond prices. One other point here is that rating agencies are increasingly incorporating transition risks into their rating decisions. So S and P, uh, which is one of the main bond rating bond rating agencies put the entire oil and gas industry at a moderate, moderately high risk, uh, citing those concerns about energy transi uh, transition risks. And uh, some work by Bloomberg suggested about 156 billion of North American and European oil debt uh, is at risk of downgrading. And when, when credit ratings get cut, that generally means higher capital costs on these new and refinanced debt. So again, real world uh, costs that are happening to these companies that fail to to recognize the, uh, the, the, the changing uh, ESG environment. Uh, we can move on to the next slide. And I think this shows that the, that the fixed income markets are changing uh, and, and evolving to satisfy the amount of ESG debt that is in demand. Uh, just to take a step back, there's over 2,300 organizations representing about $80 trillion in assets under management. And these are your large asset owners, uh, corporate pension funds, insurance companies, mutual funds. They're moving towards or moving assets towards debt linked to these ESG initiatives. So um, there is a big demand for for ESG related debt, and we're seeing that those issuance trends uh, keep up with that um, that demand. So if looking at this chart, uh, since 2015, the amount of debt linked to ESG projects has continued to grow. Uh, for the entire year of of 2015. Uh, debt issued to support those ESG projects totaled around 80 billion. We saw over 400 billion of ESG-related debt uh, issued last quarter. So uh, there has been a lot of, of companies taking advantage of that demand and, and, and issuing debt linked to ESG-related projects. And it's it's not just the amount of debt that's that's uh, being issued that's that's notable. You know, debt structures are also continuing to evolve. Uh, so I think a lot of people know what green bonds are, and that was what dominated the market previously. But now we have bonds such as social bonds and sustainability bonds and, and these uh, sustainability linked bonds, which are interesting. Uh, and they, these bonds and structures have coupons that actually reset based upon the certain uh, sustainability performance target. So if companies don't meet their sustain, uh, sustainability goals, their costs go up. You know, so again, these are real costs to companies that failed to uphold their uh, sustainability commit, uh, commitments. So. Um, you know, the evolution of, of sustainable investing has, has definitely impacted the equity markets, but it's uh, becoming a lot more mainstream in the fixed income markets as well. And as providers of, of capital, you know, fixed income investors play a, a, a big role in, in making sure that those uh, sustainability investing goals uh, continue on. So uh, it's not only in the equity markets anymore, it's, it's, it's certainly in the fixed income markets too. Yeah, and the truth is with sustainable investing, we've, we've talked before about this, it's... um. You know, people believe in it, right? Like, okay, you believe in this, you believe in that. If you believe in something, you're likely going to stick with it. Because the truth is, 
Stocks are going to pull back. Bonds are going to pull back. You're going to have good times and bad times. And one of the best things that investors can do is hang tight. When things get rocky, when seas get rough, hang tight and do not panic and do not sell. We saw a lot of people sell at least their equities, uh, you know, last March and April. We've seen what happened with over 90% rally in the S&P 500 more in small caps and NASDAQ. You know, and again, if someone believes in what ESG stands for, sustainable investing or SRI, whatever you want to call it, and whether it be fixed income and or equities, you know, that's, that's one of the really nice things that I like about this, among other things. But um, just that the investors will likely stick around when things get rocky, because, again, that's usually how you reach your long term investment goals, not to panic when things are having a rough run. All right. So, Lawrence, we're going to finish things up with Fed Week. Um, this is really the big thing this week. Last week, it was all about CPI and inflation. This week, it's all about uh, um, Fed President Jerome Powell and the interest rate decision that's coming up or the Fed meeting decision is coming up this Wednesday afternoon. It is widely expected that they will leave rates at 0%. I think we all agree there. Uh, but what is... I guess we're going to be watching closely what does you know, Chairman Powell say about inflation? What does Chairman Powell say about the economy? But the big one, and Lawrence, here comes a question for you. The idea of tapering, right? They're buying $120 billion worth of bonds, treasuries, and mortgage backs combined every single month. Eventually, they're going to start to taper, which means they're going to go buy less. Maybe it's $100 billion, maybe it's $80 billion, whatever that number is. You, know, you just know eventually they're going to start to do that. They've been dropping some hints. They bought uh, $12 billion worth of corporate bonds and ETFs uh, back in the financial crisis. So they're going to start to unload that. $12 billion is literally a rounding error in the whole corporate market uh, side, corporate bond market side of things. But market took it in stride. So they're doing some hints with that. Um, what do you think, Lawrence? Do you think they're going to officially announce tapering this coming Wednesday? And if they don't, when do you think they might um, might officially make that known? Yeah, no, we, we don't expect an official tapering announcement yet. Uh, you know, the, the Fed has, has been adamant that they're going to televise way in advance before they announce tapering and then well in advance before they actually uh, start to purchase less bonds or fewer bonds. Uh, so we, they, they haven't made that, that, that clear yet. Uh, uh, so we don't expect any sort of tapering announcement. We do expect them to say that they're talking about talking about tapering. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's been the, the big thing that uh, the financial media and others have been trying to parse out is, are they thinking about thinking about tapering? Are they talking about talking about tapering? Uh, so we, we do expect more discussion within the, the committee framework about tapering. Uh, but we do think that they're going to come out and say that, yes, we're talking about it, but it's way too soon. We haven't made that, uh, that uh, uh, substantial further progress yet on the, on the jobs front, most, uh, most importantly. Uh, so we don't expect any sort of announcement there. Uh, in terms of our expectations on when to expect that, that tapering kind of announcement, uh, third quarter seems to be consensus. Um, and, and we've been talking about Jackson Hole for, for quite some time, uh, and, that's, and that's in August. Uh, so that would be a couple more months of, of data. Uh, I think the, the Fed wants to see you know, continued job growth. And even though the, the job numbers have been you know, somewhat disappointing, they have been trending up. So I think you know, August seems like it's a, uh, at, the, at the Jackson Hole um, Symposium, it seems like it's going to be a, a good time to announce when, when tapering is going to take place and how they're going to do it. Yeah, I mean, let's not forget, you know, the jobs number that came out two Fridays ago came in at, I think it was 559,000. Pretty sure I'm pretty close to that. 
that was lower than expected. I mean, it's still 559,000 new jobs created, one of the highest numbers we've ever seen. It's just, as we all know, we lost tens of thousands of jobs or tens of millions of jobs, I should say, sorry, uh, during, during the pandemic. Um, so that's interesting. So let's talk about Jackson Hole just for a second, then we'll probably wind things down. I, I hear about Jackson Hole. It's not one of the Fed's um, you know, meetings every six weeks that they have, but it's this big annual, I guess, symposium, if that's the right word, out in beautiful Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Um, what is that one? How is that different than your average Fed meeting every six weeks, Lawrence? Yeah, so it is, it is uh, their their annual symposium where they invite central, central bankers from around the world uh, and then uh, leading economists together to, to meet, um, you know, behind closed doors and, and they talk uh, uh, monetary policy and, and what's going on in the economy. So it is, it's more than just their their typical you know open market committee meetings or Fed meetings. Uh, they are bringing in kind of outside speakers, if you will, to kind of discuss the you know, the, the, the global economy more so uh, than than just regional economies. But it has been the the site for uh, some some you know decent decent sized announcements. Uh, so this would set the stage perfectly. Again, uh, this may be you know just us uh, assuming it's going to happen, but it, it seems like everything's kind of lining up for that Jackson Hole. Uh, you know, meeting to announce uh, tapering because it, it, it just seems to fit with the data and with the, the you know the people that are going to be there. But uh, we'll we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, and the general consensus is: listen, if they taper, they're buying less bonds, right? So what does that mean? Well, yields probably go higher because there's less people buying bonds, right? Low, buy something, there's more demand. The price, you know, price uh, price can go down and yields can go up. So that we'll we'll just see. We'll see how that all shakes out. I mean, but at the same time, we're all talking about it. So if we're all talking about it. Mr. Market has a funny way of pricing these things in. Um, so it's going to be interesting uh, for sure. But, you know, we've, we've seen tapering before. We've seen, you know, obviously the Fed balance sheet literally hit eight, $8 trillion, I think, last week for the first time ever. It was about $4 trillion before pre-COVID. And the New York Fed itself has said it see this, you know, the balance sheet go up to 9 or $10 trillion before they finally, you know, it peaks out just because you just taper. doesn't mean you're stopped buying that balance sheet's still going to go higher. Maybe you're buying $80 billion a month versus 120. That balance sheet's still going higher. And as stewards of assets, I've said this before, it's our job to kind of maybe you agree with the Fed or hate the Fed. You know, there's, there, believe me, people are all over the place when it comes to the Fed. But the truth is an expanding balance sheet is more of a tailwind for equities. And um, that's just still something that we're, we're not going to ignore and is in place for a while. Lawrence, last question for you. Did the Fed by chance send you an invite? Are you part of those closed door discussions? To me, listening to the Fed drone on about this stuff, my eyes would glaze over. I'd probably fall asleep. But I'm guessing you would like to be a fly on the wall for that, would you not? I, I would love to be a fly on the wall. Um, first of all, because I've heard Jackson Hole is, is beautiful. Yeah, uh, living out there, I'd love, I'd love to to go out there. But no, I, I think the, the discussions would be, uh, would be interesting. I am one of those Fed watchers that you know, I have multiple screens here on on my desk and. I'll have the you know the Fed press conference up on this screen, and I'll be watching the tick by tick data on the, the Treasury market on this screen. So, um, you know, I, I I do tend to think it's you know some pretty interesting dynamics that, that are going on. But no, sadly, it's a, it's a closed door event, and I was not offered a offered a um, a, a ticket to get into those uh, those hearings. But yes. know, maybe I'll send me out there and, and and cover it from afar. Now, that's a good point. So when the Fed meeting happens on Wednesday, how are we going to try to help our advisors and their clients? Are you writing a blog on Thursday about it or is the weekly commentary next week? I honestly forget. How, how are we going to cover it? What, what are we going to do? We're going to do we're going to do both. So okay. there will be a blog post Thursday morning. Uh, so after 
the the announcements, the the data releases, and then the press conference. I'll, I'll put a, a blog post together that'll be posted uh, on on the uh, in the resource center. Uh, you know, it, it's a normal time that the blogs are are posted. I think it's around then, uh, and then you know, certainly the a, a daily market update report that's going to be sent out to advisors. And then next week, I think we're going to make it more about uh, kind of you know, a weekly market commentary about kind of what Fed members are saying and and doing, and because there's been a lot of not a lot of dissension amongst the group, but you are hearing different things from different speakers out there in, in terms yes. of, kind of when tapering should take place or when rates should rise. And if you look at the dot plot, I mean, you're getting some pretty different uh, projections. So we're going to cover all that in the weekly market commentary next week. Awesome. So yeah, that blog is just lplresearch.com. Um, so any anyone listening, it's a public website. You can check that out on Thursday for Lawrence's blog about the Fed and how it all impacts everything. And the dot plot, um, that is kind of the the voting member and I believe non-voting members assumptions of where interest rates are going to be out into the future. And it's widely assumed, even though the Fed is saying we won't hike rates till 2024, the dot plots, the median dot plot um, likely will show at least the Fed members are expecting 2023 for that first rate hike. And maybe the Fed eventually will, will come over and outwardly say that as well. So it's just uh, stuff we're going to be watching very, very closely. So again, this week, the top thing is clearly the Fed meeting. I know we've got uh, consumer confidence coming out this week. I believe some PPI, uh, producer inflation data coming out. Um, you know, the earnings season's kind of winding down. I mean, there's not, you know, we're, this is the quiet period, right? Second half of June historically is a little weak from a seasonal point of view. Just be very aware of that. But this week is really a quiet week on other than the Fed. So that's what we're going to have our, have our sights and ears and eyes all watching. So with all of that, um, thank you to Lawrence for joining for the very first time ever on the podcast. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks to Jeff, old trusty Jeff, who had to run an errand, but he did the first half of the podcast and solid, solid as always. Um, and we want to thank all of you who continue to listen to this every single week. If you want to try and help us, um, give us a like, give us a follow, give us a positive re review wherever you get your podcasts. It would uh, mean a lot to us and then help us build this thing that we've built, which is a podcast that's almost three years old. And then lastly, thanks to Neil, our producer producer as always for making this uh look and look and sound as good as it can because we need all the help we can get so with that everybody thanks as always we'll be back next week to dissect what the fed had to say and anything else that's out there so thanks everybody have a great week take care bye-bye this material was provided by lpl financial is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. There is no assurance that the views or strategies discussed are suitable for all investors or will yield positive outcomes. Investing involves risks, including possible loss of principal. Any economic forecasts set forth in the podcast may not develop as predicted and are subject to change. References to markets, asset classes, and sectors are generally regarding the corresponding market index. All are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. Index performance is not indicative of the performance of any investment. All performance reference is historical and it's no guarantee of future results. All information referenced in the podcast is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. Securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and broker dealer. Member FINRA and SIPC. Insurance products are offered through LPL or its licensed affiliate.
affiliates. To the extent you are receiving investment advice from a separately registered investment advisor, that is not an LPL affiliate. Please note, LPL makes no representation with respect to such entity. If your financial professional is located at a bank or credit union, please note that the bank or credit union is not registered as a broker dealer or investment advisor. These products and services are being offered through LPL or its affiliates, which are separate entities from and not affiliates of the bank or credit union. Securities and insurance offered through LPL or its affiliates are not insured by the FDIC or NCUA or any government agency. Not bank or credit union guaranteed, not bank or credit union deposits or obligations, and may lose value.